who is the church? If I were to ask you who is your neighbor or who is your best friend, how would you describe them to me that I would have a good understanding of who they are or what they are like or what kind of a person they are? We can tell a lot about someone by the way they act, the way they talk, or the lifestyle they live. What people see us do or what they hear us say give them an impression of who we are. So how would somebody describe you? If I were to ask somebody at your work or one of your family members, how would they describe you? How would the people in this congregation describe you? I've called this sermon, Who is the Church, meaning this congregation. This congregation is made up of many individuals, but we all represent this church to others. All people see of this church is a reflection of us as individuals, and what they see of us as individuals is a reflection on us as a church. So who is Calvary Chapel, New York? I will be going through Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12 today, covering the Beatitudes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You might ask what this has to do with the title of the sermon. But who we are as individuals, again, is who we are as a congregation. So if you would turn to Matthew 5, starting in verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he sat, his disciples came unto him. And when he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. It says here that the sermon was preached on the mount and Jesus was seated. You find in Luke an account of the same beatitudes being taught by Jesus as he stood in the plain. Luke mentions only a few of the same beatitudes that Matthew lists. Some critics claim that there are discrepancies in the two accounts and the Bible contradicts itself. However, there's no contradiction. There's no reason to believe that Jesus only taught this sermon once on the mount. He most likely covered this sermon multiple times. What we want to be careful of is how we interpret and understand this sermon. One misunderstanding of this passage is that all the ethical mandates of this sermon have no relationship to us today, but are ethics of the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is future and has not yet come. 
However, the New Testament teaches the kingdom of God is at hand. In Mark 1, verses 14-15, we read, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, Time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. In Luke 10, Jesus instructs his disciples to heal the sick and say to them, The kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. Ephesians 2.19 So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God. Another misunderstanding comes from from Catholicism, which teaches that Jesus is a New Testament Moses. And just as Moses brought down the Ten Commandments, Jesus brings down from the Mount a set of new commandments, which is a set of impossible ethical standards. Just like the Old Testament law, this points to the fact that we would need a Savior. You will also find that some misinterpret this as a sermon as a social gospel or a social ethics gospel. So what is a beatitude? The word comes from the Latin word beatus, which means both happy and blessed. It is a pronouncement of blessedness. Some of your translations will use the word happy instead of blessed. But the word happy fails to include the spiritual depths of the word blessed. This is an announcement of well-being. When the prophets of Old Testament would make an announcement, the people clearly understood that it was a word of the Lord. The Sermon on the Mount is an announcement of prosperity or blessing from God. In verse 1 we read, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he set, the disciples came unto him. So when he set or seated, the rabbis at that time would sit down to teach, and his disciples would sit at their feet of their teacher. In verse 2, he records, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, You might wonder why Matthew would record that. He opened his mouth. Well, because in the Hebrew person, the Hebrew person would understand that when it was written or said that the teacher opened his mouth, it meant that they were about to hear a word of God. In verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, This is not meaning that the kingdom belongs to the poor. In Luke 6, Luke speaks without this qualifier. Verse 20 says, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Some have taken from this that the kingdom belongs to the poor, and all you have to do to enter is to be poor in the material sense. In the Middle Ages, a form of mysticism arose called poverty mysticism. Poverty was raised to a level of virtue that gave merit to those who were poor. When we see this idea even today in the liberation theologians, they believe that God has a preferential option for the poor. The Old Testament describes four types of old or poor people. The first type are those who are poor due to the result of their sloth. 
They are poor because they are lazy. And they they fall under the judgment of God. The second type are those who are poor as a result of calamity due to no fault of their own. They receive no judgment, but they receive help from the people of God. The third type are those who are poor through exploitation of the rich and powerful. Not the wealthy business people, but the rulers who milk their people for all their wealth. The fourth type are the poor for righteousness' sake. Those who willingly choose a vocation that can leave them destitute because they are concerned about the things other than physical. They are promised the kindness of God who sees their personal sacrifice. Not everyone who is poor because they are lazy and not everybody is poor because they are virtuous. There is no inherent merit in poverty or sin in being poor. And that same goes for the wealthy. Matthew's statement is the poor in spirit, not weak in spirit. It means a poverty of arrogance, the opposite of the scribes and Pharisees who boasted of their righteousness. They that boast of their own merit and their own virtue do not enter the kingdom of God. Our virtue is worthless. And only the merit that Jesus earned for us will allow us to enter the kingdom. Psalms 51.17 The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. There is no righteousness apart from Christ. You must be poor in spirit to enter the kingdom of God. In verse 4, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Many scholars assume that this mourning is over one's sin. The application is broader than just sorrow for sin. In the lives of the Jews who suffered oppression, poverty, and disease, mourning was an integral part of their lives. Jesus was known as a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. There is a mourning beyond the mourning of sin. The Jews look to the Messiah as their Redeemer and their consolation. The Holy Spirit brings that consolation and dries the tears of God's people. There is a value of being comforted on the human level, but in heaven the Lord will wipe away all of our tears once and for all. There is also a mourning over our sins, but there are two types of repentance. One is for fear of punishment, and the other is a profound sorrow from the soul. There is no blessing, or this this blessing here is not for the mourning, but in the comforting. If you were to add a qualifier to this statement, it would be, Blessed are the godly that mourn. They shall be comforted. Verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. We have a tendency to think of meekness as weakness or being spineless. Biblical meekness is the quality of somebody who is strong but does not use their power to crush people. In the Old Testament, a good example of this would be Moses. And of course, Jesus is the greatest example of meekness. He did all things in love. 
He said he could bring down legions of angels to fight for him, but he submitted to the will of the Father. The meek will inherit the earth. We are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, and the whole creation groans awaiting the Redeemer. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirst for righteousness, even though we are justified by faith alone, not by works, we are created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath obtained, ordained that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10 Our righteousness will never justify us, but the fruit of our justification is growing in righteousness. We are called to grow into maturity. Just as in Second Peter 1, we are to make every effort to add to our faith virtue. Righteousness is not necessarily self-righteousness, but real righteousness is doing what is right, being virtuous. Jesus also used the image here of hunger and thirst. He was speaking to a group of people who lived mostly in the desert. They were very aware of the intensity of hunger and thirst. That intensity of a person who is starving or dying of thirst is the intensity a Christian should have toward righteousness. We should love righteousness enough to pursue it. Our promise is the bread of life and the living water of Christ. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the merciful. We are under the mercy of God. Every breath we take is of the mercy and kindness of God. If we were to receive God's justice, we would all receive His wrath. In His mercy, He has given us grace. The granting of forgiveness is in some measure granting of mercy. In Matthew 18, we read of the unforgiving servant. The idea of this parable is if we don't extend mercy to those who ask mercy of us, how can we expect mercy from God? If we are merciful, we will receive mercy. Blessed are pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. We often have been given an idea or a false idea that God is outside of our physical ability to see with our eyes. Or His glory is so bright it would blind us to see Him. While this may be true, here Jesus says, it is our impure heart that prevents us from seeing God. Seeing God has nothing to do with the physical ability, but of our lack of spiritual purity. God will not allow him to be seen by those who are impure. Because of the lack of purity, the best we can do now is to see God through his word. We can learn of his character and love he has for us through the mercy he has given us. In the future, we will be changed. We will be pure heart. We will have a pure heart. We shall see him as he is. Not just the outward appearance, but the very essence of God himself. In verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers. 
for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. This is not a promise for peacekeepers. It's for the peacemakers. To be a peacemaker in the biblical sense is not to negotiate a worldly compromise, but to seek reconciliation. We cannot, sacrifice, we cannot satisfy all parties in a dispute, but the goal is to, be, is to administer justice. It is not to work out a compromise of the flesh. We cannot sacrifice truth and righteousness for the sake of peace. As we move forward as a church, the elders will be working to maintain the peace, the unity and purity of the church, but not at the price of truth and righteousness. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It does not say blessed are those who are persecuted. The persecution that we as individuals or a church face is not always for righteousness' sake. There is no reward for persecution for unrighteousness or the righteousness that we portray falsely. True righteousness will reveal false righteousness. When Jesus brought true righteousness, he exposed the false righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. They hated it to the point of having him put to death. So they will also despise us for teaching the word of God. To pretend to be something we are not is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy can work in two ways. We can act righteously when we are not, and we can act unrighteous in order to avoid persecution. Either way, it is hypocrisy. This promise is not for those who are persecuted for their unrighteousness or those who would hide their righteousness to avoid conflict and persecution. When we receive persecution for the sake of Christ, we should count it a joy. It is more difficult to endure accusations for things we have not done or said. But we are to rejoice and be exceedingly glad. The reason we can count it a joy is because of the great eternal reward that is promised. But we put so much emphasis on the fact that we are saved by faith alone, through Christ alone and not by works. And we sometimes despise any works that we may be able to achieve. We cannot enter heaven on our merit, but, the, but by the merit that Jesus Christ has earned for us and given us freely. There are 25 Bible verses talking about the rewards in heaven being given based upon our works. We are not justified by works, but we are called unto works. So in verse 12 says, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they, the prophets which were before you. 
So I entitled this Who is the Church? Because moving forward as a church, we are no longer under our representation of our beloved pastor, Doug Copeland. We are Calvary Chapel, Newark. We need to think about how this church represents Christ and itself to the community around us. Does this congregation reflect and practice the essence of the Beatitudes? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the teaching and guidance that you have given us. We ask that you be with each, each and every one of us and give us the strength to be a light to this world, that you would be glorified in all that we do. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.